0: Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by Zone. the old way of watching sports is over. Stream over 100 fight nights a year featuring the biggest names in boxing and MMA without the pain and pay-per-view, Canelo, Triple G, Daniel Jacobs, Rory McDonald, many more. Behind the scenes content leading up to fight night, a library of classic fights, original programming, everything live and on demand, available on almost any device. Download the DAZN app on your smart TVs, tablets, mobile, gaming, consoles, whatever you want. You also get access to the brand new MLB Live Whiparound Show. Change up on every night of the week. Getting set up is easy. Download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store. Sign up by creating an account then start watching across nearly any of your devices. That is D-A-Z-N. DAZN, we're also brought to you by SeatGeek, our old friend. SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and much more. I used SeatGeek this week to buy tickets for my wife and daughter for a play that I won't mention. Because I don't know if it's good yet, but I think it's going to be good. But we used SeatGeek. And guess what? It was super easy. I just looked at the color-coded map and there was a dark green tickets and I stepped in. Uh, For $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code BS, download the SeatGeek app, or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com, the world's greatest website where we are knee deep in March Madness, Game of Thrones, NBA playoffs, music, movies, uh, an unbelievable stretch of TV right now. And uh, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find all of our classic sports, pop culture, dual threat this week with Ryan Rossillo. He's got Jason Witten on, which I think uh, Rosillo is really happy about this one. And he's usually a tough critic of his own work. Um, but that's on there. And Larry Wilmore, David Chang, One Shining Podcast, winging it with Kent Bazemore and Vince Carter and Annie Finberg, JJ Reddick. We're just all over the map with a whole bunch of pods, all the Ringer, sports and pop culture ones, Channel 33, movie things. Check all of them out. Coming up, John Skipper, my old boss at ESPN. We kind of had an acrimonious ending and and a few years passed and we're going to talk about everything that happened with us. Um, because we're actually partnering up again here, at least for a couple months with the zone and the, uh, Bill Simmons podcast. But, um, he came in on Monday, April fools, ironically, uh, he came in, we had, we had had dinner probably five, six months before that, nah, f- four months before that. And talked a lot about, um, how things went sideways with us. Cause I think it was a relationship both of us had really cared about at one point in time. And, uh, you know, the years pass, you get older. You realize you're gonna do. You would have done some things differently. Um, we're gonna talk about all that. It's all coming up. Uh, I've never quite done a podcast like this one, but it was worth doing, and uh, and I'm glad he came in. And hopefully, you'll enjoy it. Um, that's coming up right now. First, our friends from Project. All right, we are taping this on April Fool's Day, but it's running later in the week. Kind of, kind of fitting that this is an April Fool's podcast.
1: Uh, I laughed when we said we're going to do this on April Fool's Day. <laughs> I'm not sure. Who, I'm not sure who's foolish here. But, yeah, uh, no, no, I did I mean, laugh both about of that. Us.
0: Uh, John Skipper is here, head of Dazone. What are the m- common mispronunciations of, of that? DAZN?
1: Dazen, 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 Dazune, No, I haven't heard Dazune, even I though we have, have a person. business in Germany.
0: <laughs> so zone, how did, how did that, the DAZN thing, um, what does it stand for?
1: I, it stands for zone. Okay. Uh, and the explanation is that the company needed a brand that could be cleared in the entire world, which is not trivial. It's actually yeah. harder to do than you think. Uh, I think the logo looks great, the DAZN. Yeah. We get a little little uh, grief guff for the, the DAZN. Yeah. Which I think probably in the United States uh, has sort of the most baggage, right? Yeah. Um, Most of the world, it's just, it's an odd thing. And I'm always reminded that most brands aren't good brands until you have a good product. And then nobody cares about the brand.
0: Well, don't they always say like four letter acronyms? And it doesn't even matter what the four letters are, but people remember four letters easy, easiest. They do. And, and by the way, maybe the greatest four-letter acronym of all time. Right. so ESPN. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it doesn't really mean
1: anything anymore no, except No, it makes no sense.
0: It, uh, so we've known each other almost 20 years. Yeah. Um, there was a period where we didn't speak. We, it's amazing. We go that into that. We looked exactly the same. Yeah, we look exactly the same. My, my hair's probably whiter. Uh-huh. Um, and this is both weird and not weird. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we have such a history together. It's totally normal that we we had dinner, I think, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. and We talked about a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think when somebody's in your life for two decades, mm-hmm. you probably have some some bumps along the way. We had a really major bump. This is like Lizbeth Taylor and uh, <laughs> Richard Burton. We might get married again. In fact, like we are getting married again. So <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> It's a three-month marriage. <laughs> yeah, we have a, a three-month marriage. marriage. Quickie marriage. But uh, I think both of us... Both of us felt like uh we had such a history together that was mostly really good and rewarding mm-hmm. that it would be fun mm-hmm. to work together again and even if it was in a pretty small way. Yeah, look, I am
1: shockingly comfortable, right? I mean, there's a slight trepidation. You and I actually haven't done anything public for a long time. No. And uh so I had a little trepidation, but I come in and uh I, I sit down on the sofa and it's quite comfortable. <laughs> We're laughing about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Larry Bird right
0: next to you. Uh, Muhammad Ali right yeah. behind you.
1: And it's great to see you. And it will be fun to do a little something together, uh, which we are. So zone and and The Ringer are going to do a little business together and have a little fun together, uh, which I appreciate. Uh, and it really makes me feel good to figure out some other way to pay you exorbitant <laughs> <the> of money again. <laughs> quite, quite, quite deserved. It was always deserved before. It's deserved again. And uh, I think what you've done at The Ringer is remarkable and fabulous. Thank and you. It's a pleasure for me. It's like a little payback. Happy payback for Grantland, right? I could like have a, a little, little recompense bit. and say, you know what? What you've done at uh, The Ringer is spectacular. You kind of redid it again twice. Hard to do twice.
0: Thank you. Let's go backwards. Uh-huh. Um, let's go back to your background because I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You started Rolling Stone, you're a publishing guy. Yep. Uh, ESPN brings you in. Actually, no, let's stay at Rolling Stone for a second. You're working at Rolling Stone for Jan Winter. Mm-hmm when he was at the height of being Jan Winter, for better yeah, or worse. He, was, he
1: just moved the Rolling Stone to New York. I started there in 1979, right out of graduate school, Columbia. Uh, they were at 745 Fifth Avenue, which couldn't be a tonier address. It's the Squib Building, um, across from the Plaza Hotel, across from the GM Building. Yeah. Spectacular offices, the 22nd, 23rd, 27th, 28th floor, overlooking the park. Uh, but once you got inside the walls, completely and utterly countercultural. You know, Buddy Miles showed up one time with a gun <laughs> demanding to get in the office, and you had all these San Francisco transplants. It was great. Yeah. It was, it was New York pre AIDS, pre crack. So you had a real sense of freedom, and the city was tough and dangerous, but it was so exciting, you know. And they
0: had such DNA back then. I mean, it, that was the mag- – them and Sports Illustrated, I think, were probably the magazines in the late 70s, it right? It was still
1: a quarterfold tabloid. It yeah. still was printed on newsprint, and it's still – the first first issue I got there was Ricky Lee Jones. I don't know if you remember that cover, but it was no. a spectacular cover. You know, Blondie was on the cover shortly after that. I mean, it, they the journalism was unbelievable. Annie Leibovitz was still the chief photographer. Right. Jan was, a you know, at Studio 54 and was – toast to the town. So it was Hunter Thompson came in the office, uh, and we'd play, uh, he's plummeting at that point a little bit. He was, but he would come to the office and we'd throw football in the halls and knock yeah. things over. And, and, uh, Fred Schruer's once hung from the balcony by his hands on the twenty eighth <laughs> floors. Oh my God. Scared the, scared the shit out of everybody, uh, at a party. So it was great. It was really fun. And it suited me, uh, I I wanted to be countercultural. I wanted to be in the music scene. I'd grown up um, uh, in North Carolina, and my dad was a mailman, and he'd take me to the post office on Saturday to sort mail, and I'd take the magazines, and the two I cared about were Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone, right? They were my access to the world of sports, remember? Those, those were my two as a yeah. kid in the seventies. And you remember you got Sports Illustrated on a Wednesday and yeah. read about the USC UCLA game that you right, didn't four see four days
0: earlier. Yeah. yeah, that
1: you didn't see uh, because it was there was only one game on television. So that was access to that. And then Rolling Stone was the guide to the music scene and the counterculture. And you know that uh, those those were the two things that sort of formed me. In terms of the world of publishing, that and sort of reading a bunch of books.
0: So you were sales initially, and then you moved more into editorial. No, I was, towards... I was
1: secretary initially. I was an intern. Yeah. So I was hired. But I mean, after a, you moved up, I, I was hired as an intern and then moved up. No, I moved up through the circulation department. Okay. I ran newsstand sales for a year or two. I ran subscriptions. I did the business models, um, working directly for a guy named Kent Brownridge, who sort of ran the business for Yon. Yeah. So I would come in as Kent's guy who would run the models for what the next three years were going to look like. And, um, and Jan's, how difficult is he on a scale What's went to a 10 at that point? Well, he's, it's both, right? Jan is a one and a 10. If if you walk in at the right moment, he yeah. couldn't be more charming. He puts his arm around you. He tells you how great you are. And you walk in at the wrong moment, he's difficult, and moody. And, and uh, he did, you know, ultimately fire me. We, we share this in common. I was fired for insubordination. Is that true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was. I was the publisher of Us Magazine 10 years after I started. And uh, Jan wanted me to do some things which I resisted and said I thought I understood better than he did, forgetting in my mind that I didn't actually own the magazine he did.
0: And then and so he I showed was, you the
1: door. I was dismissed.
0: Really? Yeah. I don't think I knew that
1: part. Uh, so what uh,
0: happened after Rolling Stone?
1: At Rolling Stone, I needed a job. So uh, I went and worked for Spin for a year. So some guys in the music business, Steve Swid and um, uh, David Horowitz had invested in Spin. So I went to work with Bob uh, Guccione Jr. They were all great to me. I mean, yeah. I was on the rebound. Uh, I was dismissed at Rolling Stone in January of 1990 and went to work for Spin about three weeks later. And how did ESPN happen? Uh, ESPN happened because... Uh, spin, you know, I had small, small kids and lived out in the suburbs and spin was a bunch of 22 year olds. Um, and just, it it wasn't the right thing for me to do, but it did give me a good transition. And then Disney hired me, got him, Michael Linton to come out work in California. Michael Linton, the future Sony guy. Yeah. Oh, so Michael hired me at Disney to start booking magazine, um, uh, companies and, I, my original, my first assignment was to manage Disney Adventures, a little pocket-sized magazine for kids based Don't on Topolino one. in Italy. Yeah. Um, and I was 19, the end of 90 into 91. So I was in publishing there until 97. In 97, 96, I think, Disney bought ABC Cap Cities, which owned ESPN. A guy named Steve Bornstein yeah. told Michael Eisner, I want to start a magazine. And Michael said, we got a magazine guy named Skipper. And uh, he put me together with John Walsh. And we did a prototype with Walter Bernard of uh, with Alan Iverson on the cover yeah. of a magazine that was a cross between
0: Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone. Oh, that was the right? initial prototype? Yeah. I mean, basically. I just remember the every two weeks thing and but, thinking… Oh, you made a big deal from the beginning. We're looking ahead. Mm-hmm. Things are moving. The internet's coming. We don't want to go backwards. We want to look forward we, to. Look, we understood one thing very clearly
1: because it was ESPN, which was because of ESPN, you're getting a magazine on Wednesday yeah. to describe what happened at the Masters or the Super Bowl on Saturday or Sunday was ridiculous because you'd watched it on SportsCenter ad nauseum. For three or four days, and they never budged from being a news magazine. So we decided. Remember, the f- first cover had Kobe Bryant, um, uh, Eric Lindros. Oh yeah, it was all people who are about to become somebody. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was called, and it had a big next on it. Yeah. And it was a very brash statement that we're next. You know, the the old way of doing sports magazines is is over. Wasn't really. I mean, and we're
0: talking ninety seven, right? This is an interesting it time. March of ninety eight. Ninety eight. Interesting time for ESPN because I feel like SportsCenter Center had broken through. Yeah. In a in a huge way and created all these stars, and I think the commercials were already going at that point. Yes. And the company's moving in this direction of all right, how do we blow this out in every conceivable way? Yes. Which. For better or worse, to find I think the next ten years. Yeah, I mean Steve Bornstein really was the
1: guy who had the vision that look, we're going to create a multimedia company. We want to be in the radio business. We want multiple channels. We want a magazine. Steve desperately wanted a weekly magazine. He wanted to go head to head. He wanted to battle him. Yeah, he wanted to battle him. Steve was a battler. Yeah, um, and was a fabulous boss, and it was fun. And uh, I can, I and John Walsh convinced him we're going to go every two weeks. And um, and we went to the printing press that did Rolling Stone every other week, and we hired them. And I actually called my friend John; we had reconciled, and uh, said, "John, I got a good deal for you. We're going to print at the same place, and I bet you we can both save some money. The printer will be busy every other week, and uh, that it, the magazine was exactly like Rolling Stone. We yeah. printed on the same paper. I went to the same paper supplier." And so one week they printed Rolling Stone, one week they printed uh, ESPN magazine, and we did also go to the post office. I threw my dad's name around, letter carrier (laughs) from Lexington, North Carolina, and we convinced (laughs) the post office that we were publishing a weekly magazine, but we were publishing it every other week. Right. And uh, they granted us the same service that a weekly got. I think it's the first time it had ever happened. Really? And it was expedited service, so... We would print on Monday, and you would get the magazine by Wednesday, which is what happened with Sports Illustrated. Rolling Stone was printing on Monday, and you'd get it about Saturday.
0: Yeah, right. Um, well, the magazine was, I would say, really successful the first ten years. Right. At, what was the heyday? How much were you making from the magazine? It was the at heyday, least like twenty million, thirty million a year. right? Look, the
1: heyday probably had one hundred fifty million in revenue, and probably made thirty, forty million dollars.
0: Yeah, because throwing in the parties and all the other stuff. It, it just flew. What was the heyday? Like mid-2000s?
1: Because I think I was
0: right for it at that point. Um, Yeah, probably. Look, I oddly enough,
1: and I have to actually remember this. It seems wrong, but it yeah. was right. I, we launched the magazine in March of 1998. And as of January of 2000, I I'd moved to run ESPN.com. Yeah. So I actually was only there to supervise about you know, probably 50 issues. And, uh, I think, I I think Michael Rooney took over at that point. I think he became the, uh, next head of ESPN magazine and I moved out to run what had been called ESPN Sports Net. Right. And they're outsourcing it in Seattle. and It it had been done by Starwave. ESPN had bought the rights to back. They'd had a couple of, uh, people running it. And, uh, Uh, it wasn't going great. ESPN actually, it wasn't very good. It wasn't. I mean, it was sort of HTML text, and, you know, did scores, and they,
0: uh, and fantasy. The entire
1: internet was pretty bad back then, though. It sounded like
0: anybody was, uh, was running away from the pack. No,
1: everything was ugly. Yeah. Everything was ugly.
0: I do think that
1: one thing that John Walsh and I brought to it was a magazine sensibility. Yeah. Right. I immediately went in and said, we gotta have photographs and we gotta have typefaces and we had to have layouts so the thing looks good. And I was met by a bunch of guys who came in with data that said, Do you know how long this will take to load on dial up? And I'm like, I don't really care. Yeah. I said they're gonna figure that technological problem out at some point. Yeah. And we're gonna win because
0: it'll look great. We'll do photographs and we're gonna hire good writers well i remember right around then i don't know if you were running it at that point but they convinced gamins yeah. to give up the boston globe com completely and just write for the website and i always felt like that was like the first most important moment in, in sports journalism and the internet because that got somebody like my dad to be like yeah okay now i have to figure out how to get on this website for, because gamins is yeah. there remember the gamins Gammons was the, in the most Boston important Globe? column, yeah. I think it was two pages, was it? it yeah, it was, it was like 15 minutes long to read.
1: I bought the Boston Globe on Sunday as a New Yorker just to read the Gammons dot, dot, dot. Here's the another. The most
0: important. It was so, you, so
1: ESPN gets that. Way, that was John it really Walsh. felt like a moment. That was John Walsh, right? John Walsh, Vince Doria, yeah. who was ran news at ESPN, had been Peter's editor. John Walsh was a close friend. Uh, and John convinced him to come over. Look, it was followed pretty quickly by Hunter Thompson. Well, you launch, you launched Page Two,
0: spent some money on it. It's Ralph a, Wiley, Halberstam, yeah, Halberstam, and pretty quickly the sports guy. Yeah, not not me initially though. Now, when, I, did, I, I remember taking that? it personally. When, what year was uh, that? I think Page Two launched in two thousand, but you didn't you didn't come get me until spring of two thousand one because I wrote this. I it was the second time I did it. It was a better piece, but I, I remember I, I did a running diary of making fun of the Espies. Uh, yes. And somehow Walsh saw it. I remember that very
1: clearly. I remember and that story. it got
0: passed around ESPN and Walsh saw it. He was like, Oh, where's this guy? And started reading me. And then they asked me to write about, uh, Nomar had blown out his wrist in April, 2001. So they asked me to write a piece about it. I remember that. So piece I wrote well. that. They asked me to write another one. They asked oh. me to write another one. And then eventually I came in and saw Walsh. Yeah. That was all in 2001. Yeah. It was in spring 2001. Yeah. The and w- then, uh,
1: you should feel pretty good about that company, though. Those other guys were easier to find. David Halberstam and Ralph Wiley. You were the first I big was, new voice, right? These guys we went and
0: bought. They were established voices. Yeah, established voices, and it gave us credibility. And, it was smart because people were like, "Hunter Thompson's on the internet." What? Yeah. I mean, that was like, it, that was a major gimmick at the time.
1: Look, I'm quite proud of the fact that we were the last home for Halberstam, Wiley, and Hunter Thompson. Right, their last work. Basically, was on, and then we were the f- the the first
0: national platform for you. I guess wow. sports guy was national, but y- you know what I mean. No, I mean, but that was a big thing of when it, I remember you guys hired me officially, mm-hmm. and I spent five weeks trying to figure out. I took I asked for five weeks off because I've been working for like four years straight, right? And I remember I took five weeks and I really tried to figure out how a national column would work, right? Because nobody had really done it. Right. You know, it was like everything was local. Everything was local newspaper columns, yeah. and it was like, how do I try to hit everybody? So that was when I was like really leaned into the pop culture.
1: Yeah, again, at that point, the only really national sports columns were in Sports Illustrated, and they were eight hundred on words
0: once a week. Yeah, Rick yeah. Riley
1: on the on the back page. I think that he was, was already like, on the back page, right? He point. was, yeah. but
0: it was eight hundred words once a week, and they were really broad. Mm-hmm. But it still seemed like it seemed like a lot of the stuff should translate across the country. But it's it yeah. still there was nobody to point to, which was weird. But well, the weird thing was being on the on the same site with all of those dudes. Because like, Halberstam was my, my Breaks of the Game is my favorite book ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hunter was a legend. Yep, and it was just Ralph Wiley, I mean uh, all those dudes, and it, it was, you know, and then uh, leading the page over them. I'd be like, they're leading with me over Halberstam. Like yeah. it was it was hard to uh, wrap your head around. W-
1: well, became again i mean it genuinely and sincerely you know i do those guys were really important to us they gave us credibility yeah but you were the first guy who in a big way connected with a who our audience was right just like all new platforms it was it was young it was kids right and it was at that point it was overwhelmingly male just was it was 90 i
0: forget we used to be 95 percent male (laughs) and young and very young and uh and it connected I remember when we were figuring out Grantland, like I don't know, nine years later, Mm -hmm. it was kind of the same motto about you launch a site with some big names, but they're not even that. It's really the younger people that are gonna be the ones that carry the site. The big names get you know give you some recognizability and credibility, but you know the people like Dave Eggers and Gladwell and like they wrote like once or twice for Grantland, but we could put them in the press release. You, you, You know,
1: Dave Eggers was an original. Magazine guy? From ESPN the magazine. Yeah. 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 He yeah. and a guy, named Zev Barrow, uh, came as a pair. I can't remember why, but uh, they were. they wrote some of the notes column stuff yeah. up front in the book. I'm proud of that. He just published his eighth novel.
0: Hey, let's take a break to talk about Bud Light. Did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? That was news to me. Bud Light, changing the game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right on their packaging. Bud Light brewed with hops, barley, water, rice, no corn syrup, no preservatives, no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer bud light. Enjoy responsibly. Oh, let's talk about our friends from ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent. Unless they're the Boston Celtics, then you have great talent and somehow you're not the best team. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, Most of the time, the best teams start with great talent like we have here at The Ringer. No one knows the importance of talent more than ZipRecruiter. They deliver qualified candidates fast. Here's how ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. So effective, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Of course, you have to know what to do with the talent. That was one of the things that made my, uh, my relationship with Skipper so interesting over the years. Uh, my listeners can try it for free. All you have to do Let's go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Back to uh, John Skipper. When did you feel like the website really was turning into something? Something that could actually be the most relevant place for sports, but also make money? We, um,
1: I think we created a great product and I think it was resonating. And then we did a big deal with Microsoft for Microsoft, for ESPN to be the sports content on Microsoft. When Microsoft was the, was the company everybody feared, you know, there's yeah. always a company everybody fears. And in those days, it was Microsoft. And uh, <laughs> I did a deal. Now with, it's seven companies. <laughs> yeah, with a guy named Yusef Medi, a good guy. And suddenly ESPN went from 7 million uniques a month to like 20 million uniques. And we leapfrogged, uh, I think it was Sportsline,
0: Remember Sportsline? Sportsline was a big competitor. They were the leader. Well, they had a lot of fantasy, I remember. Yahoo and Sportsline had more fantasy. Yahoo, and and I made the mistake
1: of, because we were making money on uh, fantasy. Yeah. And I didn't want to give up the money. Yeah. Because it was a very small business. Uh, I think ESPN.com was like $22 million, $25 million of revenue uh, in 2000. And I think, Fantasy was three or four or five million of that. So I didn't want to give it up. Big mistake. Cause um, uh, when we went free with fantasy was the next leap. Yeah. And we made the calculation that people got the content. We then were, we we parted company with Microsoft. Uh, Cause new management came in and they wanted us to pay them. Yeah.
0: To be on Microsoft. And I said, I
1: think people will come
0: stay with us. That was when MSN.com was. A, a lot of people had emails there. Yes. So you would go to their front page to get e- your email, and, and they would be pumping like four stories, and it was always ESPN was one of the four. Yes. And then we lost that traffic.
1: We lost that traffic, uh, but we didn't actually ever lose traffic. We stayed at twenty, twenty-five million. Yeah. Thirty, forty, fifty, and I think now it's you know frequently doing a hundred million.
0: I remember the, the, the first world. time we ever hung out was the Patriots-Rams Super Bowl. Ironically, yes, it was in New Orleans. And you wanted to have lunch with me. So it was me, you and Walsh. Uh-huh. And at the time I had just written this piece that I thought was funny, but um, but everyone in New Orleans was mad at me. Cause Remind I had, me. I had made fun of New Orleans. I'd written this piece about how making fun of New Orleans, but I loved it anyway, just like right. the city. And the locals got really mad. And it was, you know, I felt like my life was like in danger practically. Yeah. And then during that whole time we had lunch and we talked and then I think the next time I saw you was when Kimmo was trying to hire me uh, yes. and we, we had some event and I was explaining to you why I wanted to, mm-hmm. why, no, this isn't right. Actually, there was another time I had, I had a bad contract and you gave me a raise. That was the second time.
1: Yeah.
0: You put me in ESPN magazine. Yep. We had a big talk. It's funny. I think you there fixed was a, it.
1: Yeah. I think there was some ambivalence about whether you wanted to be in the
0: magazine or not, or was there? Cause that, cause of the word count. Yeah. Yeah. So then the third time was the Kimmel thing. Yep. And I remember you handled it in a way. And it was a, it was actually a really good lesson for me as a mm-hmm. boss and as somebody who's in charge of people. Like, you weren't like super protective of it. You heard it out. You wanted to know why I wanted to do it. And then you tried to help me make it happen. I was like, and it was one of those things that I don't know if you did it intentionally or not. But after that, I was like, that's my guy. That, if, if that guy needs me, I, I I got him.
1: Probably turned out to be a good experience for you, right? It was I mean, great. You,
0: I remember uh,
1: coming into the, you know, you'd have me on the show, and I'd come and we'd hang out a little bit, and I'd yeah. go see the show. Uh, and it gave you experience. It allows you to do what you're doing now. And look, I, uh, my sense is you should try to accommodate people when you can. Yes. And, um, and at the time, of course, you know, I was
0: personally involved, right? I, I and and I wanted to have the long. The fact co- that it was on ABC was helpful. I think I if it was NBC. I don't know if maybe you couldn't have probably been wouldn't as a have comment. done
1: it. But I have I did I did do at
0: least one deal for somebody who wanted to go to NBC True. at one point. True. Uh, and but uh, what was interesting about that though was it still felt like the internet at that point was a launching pad to go do other things. Because right. it was like, ah, what am I going to write a comment on the, on the mm. internet for twenty years? Yeah. And then when I came out here. And then you realize how big ESPN.com was. Yeah. And so many people knew the column and knew page two. And in Boston, you're in this little bubble. You have no, you know, you have right. no idea. You don't realize it's like everybody's getting the internet. Yeah. So at some point I was like, did I make a mistake giving up that column? Like I had a pretty big platform. I didn't realize it was as big as it was. Um and it well, was
1: you didn't ultimately because when you came back it was still there, right? And you would had a different kind of experience, got you to LA.
0: No, that all of it was it's, great.
1: It, it's funny, I have a
0: hard time remembering the sequencing of it, but yeah, I do remember that. I came back, uh yeah, I came back in 04 and then stayed on after that. So uh-huh. but it felt like oh four at that point, you talked about the dial up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. The internet had really come into play at that point. Now the websites are loading faster, the content's yeah. better, it looks nicer. And, and everybody's in the internet now.
1: Yeah. And we'd
0: figured out we'd figured out how to
1: use the magazine and the television. Right. And all kind of work together to promote everything. I mean, again, it was the culmination of Steve's sort of vision that we're going to be a multimedia group company. Steve had left to run, uh, I think he went to ABC, and then he was running uh, Go.com. And George was the boss. And 2005 is when I became yeah. the head of content at ESPN. So it really but and by the way, four was the year I ran sales at ESPN. So in four, they um they sort of I actually wasn't there for with one of the years you were at Kimmel, I actually had gone to run the sales group. Right. At ESPN,
0: then came back to be the head of content when you came back. And you had so O five is an interesting ESPN year because at that point, they've expanded left and right and tried to do all these things. Mm-hmm. It was the first time there was like a backlash that you could kind of feel against ESPN. And it was the 25th anniversary, Yeah, the Gatorade, ESPN yep. The Zone, Yep, and probably seven other things I can't remember. It, but it, it was the first time people were like, hey, fuck ESPN. They're in my life too much. I, I think
1: it's hard to be cuddly, yeah. right? When you just keep getting bigger and bigger and the company was extraordinarily... uh successful financially and it was in people's lives and we starting new channels and uh and overreached in a couple of areas people don't really need to eat at ESPN. The, the the, that was a bad idea. <laughs> right. ultimately you don't need to eat there um <laughs> and uh there's the what? phone we forgot the phone the phone oh ESPN. my god the phone the phone I I was know, a
0: lot of it, the, the phone belatedly worked out because a lot of the technology for the phone ended up um, being used in all these different ways uh, um,
1: basically it 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 provided the infrastructure the technology and a lot of the people who ultimately made espn mobile mobile yeah. espn uh the leader but it was a it was a disaster of uh, when we did it And i was in charge of it i actually had to get through that uh but to the company's credit uh you could have a disaster we convinced ourselves that um that people would buy an ESPN phone, and it was an overreach. You didn't need to call with an ESPN phone or eat an ESPN I restaurant. I just feel like
0: if it had been called, like, Blade or something like that, well, there it would have a, had a better chance. There was a phone
1: called Blade. Or, it, oh, Razor or Razor, or whatever. But yeah. if
0: it didn't have ESPN in the name, and yeah. it was just, like, this phone made by ESPN, it might have had a better chance. It, it,
1: well, if we'd had gone and done a deal with a telephone right, company exactly. to do a branded phone, we, that was the better idea. There was a little bit of hubris involved, and I, I was part of it, which was we can do anything, and we underestimated that the phone companies were quite formidable and they were not going to allow a branded phone where we actually. Oh, so you felt like
0: you got boxed out a little bit.
1: Oh, yeah. they uh, Look, th- these, this is was partly responsible, not completely, but partly responsible. This, remember, this is the days when it was like, if you want to get four phones for your family, they'll be free. And the next week, we ran an ad in the Super Bowl that said, or you could spend $400 (laughs) on an ESPN phone. Everybody's like, why would I spend $400 on an ESPN phone? What are you guys doing? The AT&T will give me four phones for free. Yeah. And um, and it was all based on, this is ridiculously obscure, was based on, uh, I think it was an act of Congress, that number portability, that you had to be able to take your phone number from one carrier to the other. And lots of believe people believe that that would make people switch carriers more often and it didn't instead the carriers went we'll give you free phones we'll give you 6 months and so nobody switched uh and we were the good news is we did it for about 9 months lost a couple hundred million bucks and moved on
0: uh kept about a but uh, somehow got intelligence from it that might have actually made it worth it other than the embarrassment of just failing with a phone yeah
1: but it was okay
0: we moved it was on fine. And, and you you, you had the money back then. Pardon? <laughs> yeah, the ESPN had the money in 2006, six, seven, to take some
1: chances. Th- they did. And by the way, uh, if you don't take chances and fail every now and then, it's a mistake. And and probably uh, if there was hubris, it's because we hadn't actually made many mis- missteps, right? So you make a few missteps, and now you had a good run after 2005. ESPN had a fabulous run. It was no longer cuddly, right? It was no longer, and it was difficult and this has been a little bit thematic in my life, it became difficult to be countercultural, right? ESPN yeah. was the disruptor. They were having fun. They were uh, they were cool. Well, you become the Yankees. You become the Yankees, hard to be cool, yeah. right? I mean, in some ways, the Cubs were cooler when when they were cuddly. Uh, and when uh, they became winners, it's not quite as cuddly. The Cubs are so cuddly.
0: Well, I remember, so I signed a new deal in 07, mm-hmm. and then in 08, that was like the first time we ever battled over something was I wanted to have Obama on my podcast. Yeah. And there was some ESPN rule in place. And, and we should let you, but yeah, there was it a rule. It was like spring. And by the way, nobody knew what the f of podcast was at that point, barely. Yes. I'd had it for a year, but it was like very early stages. It's funny. I'd forgotten about that. And I guess. I remember calling you and being like, this guy's going to be the president. And oh. I could have him on my podcast, but there were the, all these other political thing. I I've gotten over it. It's, maybe it, like three years ago.
1: It's interesting. I never thought of that as sort of the derivation of a that of a thing that ended up running through my
0: presidency, right? Which is is ESPN a political organization. That was the touch point for it. And, because that was the first time where it, where it was like, well, you have to have equal time. It's like, well, why? How am I going to this guy who just wants to come up with a podcast and shoot the shit about sports. Yeah.
1: And um I probably was sympathetic to we should do it. And um George Bodenheimer was president at the time. John Walsh was very doctrinal about that. You know, we don't do this. Yeah. And I probably chafed against that a little bit, as you did. And um, uh, that's funny. It it, it clearly was the first chapter in what became, you know, Trump tweeting about, you know, ESPN's political. It was
0: the start of a 10-year something. Yeah. Yeah. And then— I remember I was having some issues with jokes I could get in and my schedule. And we ended up, <laughs> at some point, we had this big meeting in, uh, in the LA Live building, which wasn't done yet. Uh-huh. And I wasn't sure if I was going to get fired. And we had this big powwow. And we quickly realized like, oh yeah, we should, let's figure this out. And it took like five minutes. Yeah. But it was, it was the first time I remember there was some acrimony. But then it was fine after that for See, a long time. Well, the book, you remember the book? The ESPN book. The ESPN
1: book. Um, I told the story in the book, I think. Did you? I mean, it was, but but I remember the book when uh, John Moss called me and he's like, "I've marked like 55 places in the book that we need to go over and we need to talk to Bill <laughs> about what's in the book." And uh, look, it was hard. <laughs> e- e- ESPN wasn't. It was an upstart and a disruptor. It was never particularly countercultural, right? There yeah. Was a, Everybody always agreed the grooviest thing about ESPN, in some ways, was the commercials. The sports center commercials were much more subversive than the actual content on the air, right? Um, and it gave ESPN the halo of, of subversive, disruptive. But when you actually watched it, it was much more solidly grounded in sort of journalism and ethics and and rules, and
0: this is the way we do things here. And um, by the way, uh, that book yeah that that book came out in two thousand eleven because it was right after we had launched Grantland uh, and Walsh was Walsh was there uh, and got the copy of the book and went into an empty office for six straight hours and read the book and we would stand outside the door and just listen to him cackling and talking to himself about right.
1: it oh oh
0: that oh, that never happened, and just like he's just read commentary. <laughs> I wish i had we didn't have Apple phones back then. I would' have uh, just been taping it.
1: I read the manuscript of the book in a Jeep driving from Johannesburg to Jesus. You're on vacation. Blomfontein. No, (laughs) I was at the World Cup in South Africa. Oh, and and got the manuscript. And on the way from, I'd read it once before, but read it a second time going. It was from Johannesburg to Blomfontein. And my recollection is that takes about six hours. And I read the entire book. Uh,
0: I didn't have too many objections to it, right? I mean. He did. Jim Miller wrote He did a good job. I I gave one interview that like two weeks later, I was like, oh shit, he's probably going to use a lot of that stuff. But I think a lot of people, the thing I didn't realize was a lot of people were in that situation Yeah. where, uh, you know, you end up, especially if you get comfortable with somebody, you say three things and those end up being the three things. Yeah.
1: It was a good book.
0: It was fun. Remember, Remember,
1: you wanted to actually, which I thought was a good idea, establish a Hall of Fame that was
0: Hall of fame yeah, the, well, yeah
1: well it was alive there would be 50 players and you actually have oh, to the, take oh the pyramid yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. pyramid you yeah. actually had to take somebody out at some point like a cocktail which like is a, a like a fabulous, cocktail club a fabulous concept yeah um but a little too a yeah. little too difficult for the the leagues yeah.
0: to deal with so oh seven, 7 i had signed a new deal and part of the deal was to get more involved with the content side, yeah, which I was really excited about and sent you a memo, you and Walsh mm-hmm. for, and I had the title in the memo, right. the 30 for 30, uh-huh. but the premise was basically, it was two things. HBO has taken sports documentaries. Right. Why are we allowing that to happen? Um, we put out a ton of content. Nobody knows which ones to watch. Mm-hmm. We're putting out too much stuff. Mm-hmm. And then our anniversary is coming up. And we love celebrating anniversaries. And this was two years earlier. Our anniversary was 09. Yeah. So it was like, Uh, something about this makes sense. And you were like, go develop it.
1: Yep. And by the way, I think we remember that the, you you mentioned it before, the 25th anniversary hadn't gone over very well, right? It was a bunch of
0: lists and the 25 greatest. I'm sorry, this is the 30th anniversary. Yeah, Yeah. this was
1: the 30th. But I think part of the reason for the idea was reaction to, let's do something that'll be fun and different. And I do remember talking about this will be for the fans, right? It'll be a a treat and a surprise. It won't be a bunch of lists. And here's the greatest ranking of the last 30 years. And you had the concept, let's do 30 films
0: for 30 years. Well, I remember initially it was 10, 10, and 10. And I think it was like like 10 10 on players, 10 on teams, 10 10. on events. Yeah. And then eventually we just threw it out. Once we started meeting with filmmakers – They would always come up with their own idea and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. Well, you remember we sat in a room at the Ritz-Carlton Battery Park. Bunch of
1: people, right? Well,
0: that's when we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. Right.
1: Um, Because some people didn't want it to happen. Some people didn't want it to happen. I was in charge of content. We we were doing so well financially. You had enough money to be able to launch an E60, to be able to hire riders and do things. And remember, we put a big wax board up and sort of said, "Yeah, gee, you got to sort of look at the... 80s, 90s, and zeros, and sort of think about that. Here's sports. You gotta think about it. and don't forget NASCAR. Don't forget, you know, uh, women's tennis. And we said it's gotta be diverse and it's got it's gotta have a variety of themes. And we decided it's gonna be a mosaic. It's not gonna be a history or a chronological series. But if you watch these 30 films, you'll have a pretty good idea of the things that
0: mattered. Yeah, these aren't the best 30 stories, they're just 30 stories.
1: 30 stories. And yeah. we're gonna hire 30 filmmakers. Which was a, a direct, you know, again, like the magazine being different, being next relative to Sports Illustrated. The HBO at that time was a standard. and you got to figure out an alternative. and they're the pretty standard. arrogant too. Well,
0: it's, you know once <laughs> when you when you're killing it, because we were launching our thing and they were just like, oh that great, good luck with that. Yeah, we're still the leaders. I do remember it also was spectacular financially. We had
1: a contract. Somebody had the idea. I, it was I don't, Connor. Connor. Yeah. That, look, every filmmaker has a story. We don't want sports. to negotiate
0: with each person. Yeah,
1: and every filmmaker has a sports story they want to tell. One of the very first ones we signed up was Barry Levinson, yep. who had grown up in Baltimore and had the story of the Baltimore Colts band that never quit playing, even though the Colts, Ursay took the Colts to um, yeah. to um, Indianapolis. New the New band up. stayed behind, and on opening day, they would show up in the stadium and play. And Barry
0: Levinson did a spectacular film. I cannot remember the name of it. About, it was The Band That Wouldn't Die. Yeah, The Band That Wouldn't Die. Well, once we got him, then we could go get other people. Because yeah, that was the Peter thing Bird. we realized. It was like, all right, yeah. we had Barry Levinson, Pete Bird, Mike Tolan. But then you'd have the next meeting. You'd be like, we had these three guys. They're like, really? Yeah. And, and then we, it was like validated. And we have one contract.
1: And we told <laughs> everybody, you had to sign it. Right. And it was, you're going to make a documentary for $500,000. Right. We own the rights to everything in perpetuity throughout the universe on every device Ever known to man, or to the, ever invented by man in the future, or man By or the woman. way,
0: people thought that was too high back then. Now it's like a bargain.
1: So it, there was, look, you took was, some heat on that one. It was fifteen million dollars. Yeah, and people are like, "You're going to spend fifteen million dollars?" And uh
0: it was, it, it was, it was yeah. actually probably even more than that because uh, you throw in like a little extra. It was marketing. So twenty million bucks. I think the interesting thing about thirty for thirty is we never. Ever realized that they would be rewatchable and that they could just be thrown on the schedule? Yeah, that was a not one person at any point in the planning thought somebody would watch the Fab Five eight times. We just no. didn't see it. No, the, well, the
1: company done one enormous project, Sports Century, right, the turn of the century, right, and that content, other than being on Classic all the time, wasn't really reusable,
0: right? True. Um, it ba- it basically became so the company had
1: no experience with. The idea that it would be evergreen content that you could put up on ESPN 1 and 2 forever. way, they still run them, and they're still fabulous. They still hold up. It's crazy. I do remember the next year kind of going, well, we should keep doing films. And uh, again, I can't remember, and we were going to call it something different. We spent a long time figuring out what the right brand is. ESPN Films Presents. I, I was trying to throw my body in front of it.
0: Yeah, I think you did. And we decided, <laughs> why in the world would we No, we did it for like a few, we did a few that were called ESPN Phil Presents. You're right. I think what happened was new people came in charge and who weren't affiliated with 30 for 30. And then, yeah. you know, you want your own thing at that point. But eventually, I think we were putting out these documentaries and people were just calling them 30 for 30s and they weren't even 30 for 30. So at that point we realized, yeah. all right, this is and, stupid. And look, you had a little thing where
1: the company was in Bristol and was about Bristol. And this was kind of a group of people who were in New York. True. And, and there'd never been sort of a renegade. I mean, the magazine, in some ways, was a renegade project, right? Built in New York. But that was okay, because it was publishing. Now you're suddenly making television, and you're making television with a bunch of people who were in New York and not up in Bristol. And um, I think there were some people who thought we should be doing it in Bristol. And, and uh, I remember when we launched... Um, Sports Center in Los Angeles, it was controversial. And there were people who didn't think that we should be overt that we were actually doing this from Los Angeles. Right. Because remember, ESPN, they didn't really, other than Bristol University, they didn't kind of say from Bristol, Connecticut. True. They, Eric Rideholm was producing um, PTI in Washington, D.C., and it never yeah. really said, by the way, I never succeeded in that. I always wanted to sort of show a picture of the Capitol before, before, uh, Part of the interruption and be about, gee, we're in Washington D.C., we're in Los Angeles. I did insist on it for Dan LeBetard's show in Miami. Right, we're going to do Miami. Which I think is up. We're going on the beach and we're yeah. going to show the beach, and people are like, you don't want to do that. Um, yeah, I uh, do think. Not quite sure why, but
0: yeah, I remember when we were launched at 30, 30, like they they weren't promoting it really that much. Yeah, which I think weirdly worked in our benefit, but I always felt like there was a little resentment toward it. Yeah. So then oh nine, I. My basketball book came out too. Mm -hmm. Website's going great. I ended up doing another deal and that's when the Grantland thing happened. And that was was, uh, 2010. mm -hmm. I had this idea for a website. Mm -hmm. Talked you in Washington to it at Mm -hmm. the Trump Soho, ironically. Is that where it was? (laughs) Yeah. At the Trump Soho. (laughs) At the Trump Soho. (laughs) (laughs) Soho. Because that was at ESP Hotel. Uh. Walsh would stay at the Trump... We we'll also always say the Trump the International Trump and, right at uh, Columbus Circle. Yeah, this was at Trump Soho for some reason. Yeah, and uh, and it was basically, hey, let's try well, to do this website that has long form, all this other weird stuff. We'll find some new talent, and you were like, great, let's go. Yeah, and and we did, and it was fabulous. Look, the um, I think uh,
1: and, and I, was, my job was still the head of content. You were one of the most important voices we had. And right, I always started the discussions by saying, what do you want to do? Yeah. Let's figure out what you want to do next, because everything you have done, it helped us. And um, you wanted to start a website. I'm like, let's start a website. It was also not <laughs> universally popular that we were going to spend money on a sort of, again, kind of countercultural, kind of literary. Yeah. And it was a moment in time, too, when people were kind of going, long form is dead. You know, it was— The um,
0: blogs thing— it was shorter shorter faster more 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 and seemed you, to be the the and, model and which we, we didn't agree I've with. always believed I still don't believe it I still believe that there
1: is a large audience for long form storytelling
0: Let's take a break to talk about Robinhood it's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks ETFs options and cryptos all commission free while other brokerages charge up to 10 dollars for every trade Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits plus There is no account minimum deposit needed to get started. You can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view collections, such as 100 Most Popular with Robinhood. You can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks. Track your favorite companies. Get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood, giving listeners of the Bill Simmons Podcast a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at simmons.robinhood.com. Back to John Skipper. The one thing that's changed, I think, as we head into this next decade is so many people read now on phones. Yeah. That it is just really hard to read. I, I think- it is That's really why hard. the ringer has. I mean, it's different for a lot of reasons. It's the Grantland, but um, it's just that site was designed for desktops. Yeah, you know, when it, in it, 2010, we were like, we wanted people to read it on their computer. We did. There wasn't even iPads back then.
1: No, I, look, I've made a really hard transition for me towards reading the New York Times overwhelmingly on my phone. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And it's crazy. So when they do one of those investigative stories, it leads into a double truck in the newspaper which is six thousand eight thousand words I can't really get through it on the phone I mean I I've, I may love there's a big story today on Purdue Pharma right and it's I I read it on my phone you're like turning it sideways it and it's hard I did not get to the end of it um if I had the paper I am pretty sure that probably is a it's on the front page. I'm pretty sure it probably is page I'm making it up seven and eight and is a spectacular piece of investigative journalism. It is one of the things that should worry everybody, right? Is that it's hard to do that in a three minute video. There is something about a long form piece that somebody has spent months on read documents that sort of matters culturally, um, and should matter to the citizens of the country. We'll move on from this, but, uh, I don't know how you do that on a phone. I, I can't. I was
0: doing it reading, riding a bike this morning. Then we sound like old guys on the couch a little bit, but I agree with you. Right. It's just like, it's the way things are going and there's no way to stop it, but I'm with you. It's uh, it's not the same reading experience, but then, you know, I watch it with my kids. The the phone is just popping up and they're on Instagram. Yeah. And there are all these different things. They're on their text, Snapchat. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget being at South by Southwest in the groovy hotel and going to the
1: concierge and I think almost as a moment of pride, I'm like, you, you have the Sunday Times. They're like, uh, no, we don't, but we we do have a digital subscription. If you put your room number in, you watch it. I'm like, no, no, I want to go find the paper. I remember going to get in the paper, walking through the lobby, and feeling like I was— Yeah, you're holding a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. I was holding a newspaper, and I felt like people were
0: staring at me like, well, you're wearing a zoot suit. <laughs> so we launched Grandland. Mm-hmm. The next year, mm-hmm. George decides he's leaving. hmm And you get that job. January of 2012.
1: So yeah, we launched. You had a feeling you were going to get that job, but we didn't know for sure. Um, I didn't have any feeling that George was going to retire. I felt. That was shocking. I felt that, um, I felt that I was best equipped at the company to be the next president. But, uh, I remember saying to George, George, as long as you stay, I'm fine. I love this job. Yeah. Um, but we had to, when you did your annual review, you actually, there was like a box you had to fill in and say, what jo- What's your next job do you want? And I remember saying, I, if, if you leave, I want to be president. Yeah. If you don't, I'm fine. I'll keep doing this job for the next 10 years. It's a great and I'm job. Happy. It's a great job. So, in some ways, it's a better job than being the president. <laughs> Not, I, th- I would say, it all, <laughs> always, except financially. Look, it's interesting. Somebody recently asked me, At, at what moment did you kind of have the most fun? Yeah. I, uh, the magazine is right up there. Starting the website's right up there. In success, you will inevitably get into jobs that are more financially rewarding, that have more influence, and those things are intoxicating and and matter, right? Changes how where your family lives. It changes what you do, but
0: they're hard to be fun because they are so overwhelming. Well, I remember I mean, you, you called me and you told me that this was going to happen, yeah. And my my instant reaction, because I'm an only child, I'm selfish, was like, this is bad. This is <laughs> whatever the current arrangement right now is going great. Yeah. I love it the way it is right now. And you're like, no, no, this is great. This is going to be awesome. I'm moving up. I'm going to be in charge of everything. This is yeah. all good. It's I'm good. like, yeah. Well, no, I
1: remember that conversation.
0: It's- I was like, well, but it's really good now. <laughs> I, li- I like it. I yeah. like the way things are going today.
1: It, it turned out to be right about that. You yeah, turned out to right. be right. I, I did, I love the job. It was really fun. And well
0: within a year, I remember watching from afar and it just seemed like it seemed like you were on a plane all the time. Yeah. And I, I would call Denise and be like, where's Skipper? She's like, Oh, he's in he's in Italy talking to the Syria, whatever. And then yeah. he's flying to Zimbabwe, and then he has to go to Antarctica to find the uh the X games yeah. Antarctica. And then he's flying to France. And I'm like, All right. Yeah. Well tell him, tell him I said hi. Yeah. But that it, was your job. I mean, that it, job's crazy. And uh, you had what, 8,000 employees? Oh, we had 9,000?
1: Um, I don't, I can't quite remember. It was always misleading because if you sort of added up all the contractors and the people who were in trucks, and, you know, it's, and by the way, it is a responsibility. There's 20,000 people, 25,000 people whose livelihoods depend on ESPN. Yeah. And then they have families. So, yeah, I always sort of had. I always felt that burden. That oh my gosh, we're responsible for people's colleges and houses, yeah. and and uh, that's a good thing. I mean, and you know, I I have a serious work ethic, and I worked all the time, and uh, and it was fun. Didn't leave a lot of time for uh, calling my old pals and yeah, and and didn't leave a lot of time. I had trouble consuming the content. Remember, we were doing. S- s- 20,000 and 30,000 and 50,000 and 65,000 then 85,000 live hours a year. And we were producing at one point over a thousand pages of journalism a day. And you understood that that we were doing, I forget once I figured out we were doing eight, nine hours of television every hour, as well as the equivalent of what used to be the Sunday Times every day. So all you could do was read a tiny fraction of it. People ask me about other programs or things. And I'm like, I never watched Friends. I never watched anything because if I had a, if I was in front of a television, I had to watch ESPN. Right. Because it would be people who were working. So you start losing your feel. You do sort of, because you're really not, you, you can't really be in touch with everything that's going on and be at the cutting edge of things because you just don't have time and you don't have time to read everything. And you're going to meetings and you're doing budgets and you're, uh, involved in disciplinary actions and, you're, <laughs> and somebody's unhappy or you're, you're trying to renew right. trying to renew a contract, uh, a rights
0: deal. Well, the thing that I thought, you know, in the moment it felt like two things were going on that I wish you had seen. One was, it was crazy that you didn't have like a chief of staff. Yeah. I remember talking to you about that. I was like, how do you not have somebody who just preps for... Every and you're like no no I'm my own guy, but would, it, it seemed like you should have had that sidekick who just like all right you have a meeting with AT T at ten yeah here's everything you need to know here are all the bullet points but you wanted to like do everything
1: I was sort of stubbornly uh, unwilling to adapt in some ways to corporate life you remember, you remember yeah. that commercial where the 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 guy in the corner office muses you know you know I want to stick it to the man yeah and yeah. this like this like young aide says well sir you actually you are the man so I had this countercultural streak this anti-establishmentarian streak and I prided myself I'm the only guy running a, a big business who has one assistant right and no chief of staff all my peers at Disney had two assistants and something that would be called the assistant to the president right and I'm um, like no nah, I don't need all that I can figure all this out I was wrong um and um and you I ended up with more things. To handle than you could. I prided myself on returning every phone call, which at some point I did for a little while. I remember David Stern got mad at me one time for not returning his phone call. And it actually forced me into making sure that I either returned every call or I would have my assistant call and say, You can't call today, I'll call tomorrow. And I
0: did every email every day. Well, I remember one time I went in your office and you were like, look at this. And it was an empty inbox. Yeah. You're like, I've answered every email. And I had like four thousand unread emails in <laughs> my email account. I was like, How are you doing
1: this? You just, you've worked all of, you did it all the time. Yeah. You not health, eventually not healthy. I did, eventually not healthy. And uh I did have a a rule I would urge on everybody. I never opened an email and put it in a folder to deal with it later. You just did it right away. Just did it I read right that. Way. Uh, That's an unbi- agreement. He's unbelievable. Uh, I, 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 at one point thought there must be some like secret operation where a bunch of people were answering his emails while he ate lunch. Nah. Because I'm like, he's got to be eating lunch right now. But I send him something and he answers me right away. He sleeps like three hours. He's, uh, he's his, You know, I, I, I dealt with Jeffrey Katzenberg when I first got to ESPN. Who was this? Who sleeps no hours? Who is like amazingly efficient? Yeah. I mean, he and and Bob get more stuff done, I think, than anybody. Yeah, I don't know how he does notes on Star Wars and goes to the park and and checks out the new ride. I mean, it it really is an extraordinary
0: big job. I, I don't know how people do it. The other thing that I was worried about was you didn't you didn't have like you inherited a lot of people that became your inner circle. Yeah, and I always felt like even in the moment, like you got to create your own inner circle. Yeah. Like lots of things, right? The,
1: they're the good and the bad is the same thing. Right. So the fact that, that George had a staff that had been there forever and was stable was great, but it had the double edge of it kind of, most of them became sort of my guys. Yeah. But I didn't really change things up. And, and I remember
0: Walsh saying, Skipper's got six months. And then that just becomes what your team is. He, and I was like, really? He was like, yeah, he's got six months. He's not wrong. I mean,
1: look, people go in this sort of the 100-day theory that yeah. you got 100 days to sort of look around and figure out what to do. And then you better do it because I guess it's the 100 days and then the six months that Walsh was talking about. If you don't do anything, then you're where you are. Unless,
0: not- you're, unless you're Trump. Then it's just every 20 days you just change. Yeah. Yeah. Change like three people. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I remember the, the politics definitely got dicier the, because um, you had, you just had people grabbing territories. And that was, I, I was so naive with a lot of this stuff and I never realized from my end, like hmm. I was considered to be close to you, which was bad for me. And well, I created the, some, some resentments and politics. Yeah. It was like, and, fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, but the first time I really felt it was that time with the, uh, when, uh, when magic left countdown and then i think the new york times wrote a story or somebody wrote a story about that we had had this power battle and oh right 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 and i was like what the fuck i love magic and that was the first time like i and then i remember you and i got mad at each other about it but i was like this is insane why does this exist why would somebody do this yeah but now i look back i was like man i was naive i should have I should have been more uh, aware of this stuff.
1: Yeah, like most uh, again, like the same thing. Naivete has a certain charm and incense to it, but I, I was naive about some of the things you mentioned. The politics thing—I was sort of naive, right? I'm an idea. I'm a little bit of an idealist, and and uh wanted to change the world. We try to use the espies to change the world a little right. bit. I, I never—I believe my own rhetoric that look, there's we're not playing politics. You know, we're we're involved in. And diversity and tolerance and opportunity for everybody, and how can that be political? It's been politicized in this country, <clears throat> but I didn't believe that celebrating the rights of people to have whatever to be who they were uh, was a good thing. And you know, how could you be against that? You know, if 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 Bruce Jenner felt that his that he was Caitlyn Jenner, who's to say that he should deny himself herself that? Right and and uh, it was a little naive that a lot of the world doesn't think that.
0: I think, and especially for me, ESPN side, people were like, "Can you guys just show us games and highlights?" And, and it's not. And a- I don't. I don't think. I was with you on pretty much all of this stuff, but I also like I look at what ESPN is now, and it, it does make more sense as a business. Uh, it's like here, here are sports, here are highlights. Here's some shows about people talking about sports. We're yeah. going to stay out of your way. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. I, the, um, I, I have some
1: level of sympathy for people who are like, you know, I want to watch sports. It's a retreat. It's, uh, I used to hear it from George. He'd say, look, people want a respite from all the controversy and stuff right. that's going on. The hard part was we were a news organization. And ESPN is a hard thing to compartmentalize. And people want to compartmentalize it. We want it to be everything. Back to the Steve thing. We wanted to be a news organization. We wanted to be the leading producer of games. We wanted to be journalists. We wanted to be uh, opinionists. We wanted to, you know, let Stephen A. Smith talk and let let Don Van Natta do investigative reports. And we wanted to do it and have Bill Simmons have fun and produce an alternative website. It sort of felt like you could use the big umbrella of ESPN to do anything. Yeah. And... For some people, it's it's back to 2004, right? When it's no longer cuddly. And when you had the sort of politics of polarization and alienation, you suddenly were forced to pick sides. And there's not many people who span both sides. Sports actually has the ability to do that. Uh, no, Nobody that doesn't like sports. And in fact, a lot of the biggest sports fans tend to be fairly conservative. Right. right? They tend to be in the Southeast and the Midwest. And...
0: Um, well, I remember 2013... In the summer, it was like the ESPYs. What I I forget who hosted it, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a second season of Countdown. And we had dinner. Yeah. And at that point, ESPN was at like the peak of its powers. It was making an incredible amount of money. We had really no competitor at all, and a ton of influence, and we were doing cool stuff. Like yeah. I, I do feel like the stretch from like 09 to 2013, I still stand by. The company was super creative. Like 30 like 3030 and Grantland stuff like that, like e- um, nobody else was doing this. E60
1: and E60, we
0: gave Wright Thompson an issue of the magazine to do
1: a thing on New Orleans. I mean, it just real- felt like he could do anything. Yeah. You know? And I remember
0: Fox was coming. Uh-huh. Right. And this is one of the reasons we like each other, because you were like, these guys are I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy these guys. Was- <laughs> these guys think they're gonna compete with us. I'm gonna ruin them. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I can't I remember it was in August. I can't remember. Yeah, it was like July year. or August. July or August.
1: Yeah, no, and look, we were, um I I used to tell people, well, I'm a southerner, but but uh I'm William to come to Sherman, you know, when it comes to business. i want to scorch the earth. Yeah. And our idea of scorch the earth is we're gonna we're gonna get the rights to everything. I mean, good luck figuring out how to program 8,760 hours when there's no ACC available and there's you know no NBA available and there's no um, U.S. Open available and there's no Wimbledon available and and uh, you know I think we did understand early at ESPN that live rights are going to be ascendant. I do know that when I got my content job in October two thousand five, George was unbelievably supportive and I said, George, we just just start buying rights, yeah, and buy things, and, and you
0: didn't even know you had. All the competitors that you look at 2019, there's competitors.
1: competitors everywhere we bought things that that we had to start new channels to put put on put them on right we did an s e c deal and got everything it's at one game
0: uh every what was week. The, what was the best move what was the worst move Because i I actually think the best move and I said this in the moment was n b a and people are like, wow, they paid so much for NBA. I'm like, no, they didn't. The, the, it's, the it's, NBA has most of the famous athletes we have, the, and it's about to go global. The NBA is so ascendant, and the
1: it, it's a long-term deal, and it's a spectacular deal. I don't—it's it's criticism I bristled at because it's like, exactly what would you have had us do? Yeah. he overpaid. It's like, you only can overpay if you don't need something. Or if there's nobody else who'll pay that much money, and there were at least two other big companies why that would you have paid want to, that much money.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look at Fox and Football in 94. Why would you want to give somebody else this giant asset that they could turn their business around? You didn't. I mean, we... Uh, I, thought uh, the, I thought the MLB was an overpay, though. I, I remember we talked about that at the time, just because I felt like baseball was becoming localized. The, um, look, I don't regret doing that deal. I eh? think baseball is part of the heart and
1: soul of ESPN. I pushed hard to dominate the regular season. Yeah. If I had to do over again, I would have bought some, tried to buy some playoffs, right? And now Fox has got the World Series, so I think 26. Um, and being in the baseball play postseason would have been a good idea. And we bought I remember I was so proud because we had 100 regular season Cause games. Because it's, it's literally eating up innings, no pun intended. Yeah. No, and, and it it still is very important. You know, it's a lot of highlights. I would rather it's, add
0: to soccer. If it if it was like my salary cap, the World I think Cup, you, I think there was a moment there where you just could have had, and you love soccer more than anybody, uh, where you could have just had soccer. It would have been like all the soccer is here,
1: everything. Yeah, I, the the uh, issue was before over the top. There was no place to put it. Right we we bought the we bought the English Premier League game that was the first game on Saturday morning. That was the first time I think the English Premier League had been on national television right. in the United States. And we, and by the way, nobody, people thought it was nuts. Because remember, we had hunting and fishing on <laughs> right. on Saturday morning when I got the job ahead of content. And I didn't want hunting and fishing on in the morning. And yeah. we bought the English Premier League to put on before, college, before game day. It's so, like, oh, it was great. You would get up in the morning and you'd watch Liverpool play. And then you'd go to college game day. It was
0: great. Um Yeah, it, in the time in the moment it made no sense. But then it immediately made sense once people saw it. But then without any place to
1: put it, we couldn't buy the whole league. And Richard Scudamore, who ran the Premier League at the time, wanted to sell the whole package and NBC smartly bought it. I regretted that. I regretted we didn't figure that out. But it was pre over the top, so you couldn't really put games on broadband. Um What about a Super Bowl? It really wasn't possible. It wasn't like we made a decision not to get it. I mean the, um, it, it was, when we did the last NFL deal, um, ESPN is getting so many distributor fees. There was no rationale for us to put those games on ABC. Yeah. And the N- NFL was non-negotiable. They would not agree to give a Super Bowl and put it on ESPN. And we were so ESPN-centric that I don't think we even ever thought of, we well, you know, we'll put it on ABC. We'll put the Super Bowl on I ABC. I think they, they're
0: thinking that way now. Yeah, yeah, I think
1: so, too. And it's smart. And I was Probably we were so ESPN myopic that we we uh, we always wanted to take the NBA and take put it on
0: ESPN. But well, this is a good segue to when we start having problems. The NFL. Uh huh. <laughs> Let's take one more break to talk about Simply Safe. Nothing's better than going to a game with the family, but once you've settled in your seats, thoughts of home can get distracting. Did I lock the front door? Did I shut that window? You should never have to worry about break-ins. Not if you have Simply Safe Home Security. They have everything you need to stop fear at the front door. With Simply Safe, your home is protected twenty-four-seven with security experts on standby to send the authorities in an emergency. Plus, Simply Safe will keep working if the power goes out, if the Wi-Fi goes down, or if a burglar smashes your keypad. So now your home is secure always. I'm not the only guy who thinks it's smart. Simply Safe is the top choice security system for CNET, PC, MAG, and more than three million people. So try Safe and see how good it feels to fear less. Just go to SimplySafe.com slash BS to learn more. That is simplysafe.com slash BS. Back to John Skipper. I think the genesis of it was probably um, some stuff with count, me being unhappy with some stuff that happened with Countdown because I had not wanted to go back. And, um, and you and I weren't spending as much time together. Very little. And, you know... All of a sudden it gets a little ornery and then that leads to, I do the podcast, said the stuff about right. Goodell mm-hmm. and then you have to suspend me. Yeah, And, um, um, the, look, when we, you worked, left me a very angry answer machine message, which I erased. Good. Thank you very much. Cause you're my friend. I'll be like Nick Nolte or yeah, somebody. It, it, uh, it, was, it was like a Christian Bale type. Yeah. No, you I'm, were so mad at me. Yeah. Well, I think you're the maddest anyone's ever been at me. Uh, I, I think you and Jamel
1: Hill have, 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 were the were the, uh, benefici- we're, the finals. were the beneficiaries of two of the very few temper tantrums I ever had. Uh, I have very few temper tantrums. Yeah, uh, but that was one of them. Mostly because, but, but we were no longer dealing with each other day to day. So it was like I, I always saw all the work you did. Yeah, but we weren't dealing day to day. So when you would pop back up into my life, it was because it was some kind of problem. And it's like, damn. And I got, you know, a full day already. And now I'm going to spend the next three hours trying to figure out how to deal with this. Which is um, something that I now identify with. Yeah, happy, yeah, as, as management, you're now the man.
0: I, 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 you, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And uh, and look, we were Although I will say in that case, I'd, we had done, Jalen and I had done like a six-hour video shoot that day, and mm-hmm. we had also done this podcast. And I ha- I hadn't actually heard what I said. I wish I had heard it because if I had listened to it, there's one part I just would have taken out and it would have made a lot easier. I stand by the Goodell lying about stuff part. but the hard part about like, I don't even know what I was saying with like challenging my bosses. Well, it was kind of incoherent. Yes.
1: It it was basically, and I dare anybody to do anything, which is just stupid. And of course you, you, as
0: Kyle (laughs) knows, we take stuff out of the podcast all the time. You
1: you push the envelope and then you, (laughs) it's funny how you remember these things. I was standing, uh, on a sidewalk in Raleigh, North Carolina, trying to visit some friends of mine, and yelling into the phone at you, <laughs> and you did. You said, "Look, we put the damn thing up. We didn't. I didn't have time to listen to it." And yeah, in retrospect, uh, I probably shouldn't have challenged. I don't think. I don't think you ever said uh, apologize for the remark. I, uh, I will never but, apologize for that. But um, and uh, so then, so then, when I
0: got suspended, you didn't. You had somebody else tell me. So yeah, then I was, I was mad about cow- that. Yeah, I was
1: probably a coward.
0: No, I, I, well, who knows? So I was mad about that. And then we didn't talk. And then you called me to talk and I wouldn't talk to you. Yeah. I mean, we like 13 year olds. Yeah. Like I look back, I'm like, God, why did I handle? But I I, was, I took it so personally mm-hmm. that I couldn't even talk to you about it. I remember that. I remember that. Look at, um... But it was a lot of it had to do with the history that we had. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, honestly felt like I was like, you know, it was like fighting with my dad or something. Yeah,
1: it's it was sort of like you said, you know, after we did the Grantland, the Grantland deal, it was like, this is my guy. And it's sort of like, where's my guy gone? He's disappeared into the corporation. Yeah. And doesn't he think I'm important anymore? And uh the answer was, of
0: course I thought you were important.
1: I didn't have time to deal with it.
0: Yeah. And uh that's a But I think I I don't think I was the only one in that position of. You're used to, cause you were such a good boss when you had an easier job that now you're just kind of quickly passing through people's lives. And it was really, it was just different, it, you know, It was um, cause that wasn't your management style. Your management style was anytime you went into a meeting, you always knew what the fuck was going on and that you always had a way of, oh, even though I just spent a half hour with John, it was a really meaningful half hour. Yeah. And then it, it, at some point that job was crazy. Well, I remember thinking we have a thousand people under contract
1: for talent. Just talent. Yeah. So if I see three people a day, I'll see everybody one day, right? Yeah. One time a year. And of course, you have a hierarchy of who you can see. And at that point, I was mostly in Bristol and LA. And so it was like, we got to see the 30, 40, 50 people who matter the most. And I always hated that. I'd run past people in the halls of Bristol, and I'd go,
0: "Hmm, I think that I think that guy's, guy's name owned, is Bob."
1: Yeah, I think his name is Bob, and I'm I think he's
0: pretty, right of the SEC network for
1: uh, me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure <laughs> right, that he's doing. He's like the third, the third play-by-play guy on the SEC football. Yeah, and I had a natural inclination to want to know everybody. Right, I go to the cafeteria and I try to remember everybody's name, and uh, it is the people. Ultimately, you have to be somewhat impersonal at a very senior level with tens of thousands of people. You
0: just you, There's no way to know everybody. Um, so we we had a dinner, I think, like a month after I got suspended in L.A. And I made the mistake of telling somebody that uh, worked for you, like my plan for things I wanted to talk about, who uh-huh. then told you all the things I was going to talk to you about. And it was like playing an NFL game where everybody knew the other team knew my plays. <laughs> It's like the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, What's the Raiders? Going on? Yeah. I thought that reverse was gonna work. And yeah. I, I don't think that made it great. But then I don't know. Did you feel like I was gonna leave at that point? It's weird. We never talked about this.
1: Um I I did ultimately come to believe that you weren't gonna be happy within the constraints of ESPN, right? Yeah. And it always gave me sort of a bad vibe when I had to be the bad guy and call. Because I wanted to let you do the Obama interview, yeah then I when I got to be the man and had to call to say, you can't do this. Uh, I don't like that role particularly. It wasn't uh, natural to me, but I accepted it was my responsibility and I've always taken my responsibility pretty seriously. But then, yeah, we could talk about the uh, you know the the morning when I d- decided that we weren't going to renew your contract and all I did was beat you to the punch because you weren't gonna stay. And I knew that because I that think is you, true. I think ultimately you felt that you needed to find out what you could do for yourself. If you were on your own, what would I said, you do? The,
0: the problem though is I, I really love the Grantland people and I was yes. still to the bitter end trying to figure out how can this work? I, I remember we had talked about an idea of, I just left the company and then we formed a company that then was outside of the ESPN universe and that became Grantland yeah. and how would that look and. Um, yeah, I think you, there was just so much bad blood with people underneath you more than anything that yeah. that wasn't realistic. The I'm sorry that Grantland was
1: a casualty of that because it was a good it was a good group of people. I don't know if it had been possible to sort of create to say, "Hey, take Grantland." I, I think we had um, invested enough money that I'm not sure there would have been a receptivity internally toward just let him have it. If it had been the John Skipper company, in retrospect, right. I would have said, "Just take." take it and go do it yourself because you would have had no trouble cover it. you know,
0: you'd have found sponsors. Well, because the ride home model was the one that was the most interesting yeah. to me because he basically was outside the company but worked for the company and and it was kind of at some point I'm thinking like, if we just did that, that would work. But yeah.
1: uh You got yeah. that, that a couple of places. Mara, man who does the Espy's, has her own company and does the Espy's for us. And yeah, you could have probably created content for us and done what you're doing now if I'd have been <clears throat> Savvy enough to sort of figure that out. The I think thing, though, the
0: the beat to the punch thing, though, I I was still <laughs> that night before I still hadn't felt felt like I had really said anything, but it, what was happening was people were reading these pieces, yeah, and you were reading the piece and not actually listening to. I mean, I was on Dan Patrick's show. I made some like joke about Gennaro if he has tested good fortitude, but then in the way the piece made it sound, yes, and you had already told me like you got to steer clear of the NFL. Like this is, yeah. Yeah. this is. You really have to, yeah. So I don't know, but do you regret that now? Regret which so beat part? To to the of punch it. thing. I regret that it interfered
1: with that relationship for a long time,
0: and because uh, you should have just called me, we should have talked about it. We sh- we should have, I guess, because I had done, I had had fourteen good years
1: at that point, you know. You had fourteen great years. Uh, you were a master at Twitter, and I think I miss. I think I calculated somewhat cold heartedly. Uh, he's going to beat me to the punch, and it's going to be on Twitter. My, I do recollect if, that I didn't yeah, get a, you, I didn't get a heads up about the Dan Patrick show, <laughs> so it was my one chance. No, I didn't give you a heads up. I remember actually, I didn't have
0: that conversation with you. I had it with with Baby Doll,
1: James yeah, Dixon.
0: Uh, but that was another one where I didn't. I had been on there before, and I didn't know I had to do the head. I mean, that was just like stupidity on my part. Uh, I mean, I was like you. I was. Yeah, I was doing so many things. Like things were slipping through the cracks for me too. It's, it's funny, when but you're you, right.
1: When you grow up and you 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 know, you remember these things have an arc right. I I don't know if, if if even sitting here, don't you sometimes sit here and go, how did I get here? I mean, what what was a series of events? Well, I but still- it,
0: it just to me it seems stupid now because we had this like you know real relationship, and we at some point should have just had like a real conversation about it. Yeah, but so- I think at some point. I say it from your point because I look like the rogue asshole who's not not listening to you, and that's making you look bad as a leader, which is a whole other issue. Look, it, it, in retrospect,
1: we both in some ways probably looked a little petulant, foolish. I agree. And we would have been more dignified had we said, hey, let's get in a room and figure out what we're going to do here. Yeah, and, just go have
0: a dinner and talk and, about this and shit. And do that. But
1: it was hard because um, – it's a cop out, but it's it's doesn't mean it's an irrational or uh, incomprehensible cop out. Which is, I didn't have time. Yeah, right. I didn't have a, a day to fly out to LA and take, which was what it would have taken. Yeah, in the past, you know, you and I had you <clears throat> mentioned before we had dinners, we talked. If we'd have had a dinner, we'd probably figured it out. I didn't have time. It's a cop out, and you should make. You know, I should have made time for uh, someone who made the contribution you had, and I I, I don't think you ever did not feel genuinely that I appreciated it. I remember. That's true. But, um uh, and it was profound. I mean, my, just like you have people now who work for you and they make you more prominent. I knew that what you'd done had been one of the things I'd used to get me to where I gotten to. Right. right. That and, you know, E60 and 30 for 30 and the magazine and the website. And there were tons of people Uh, I won't call it that, you know, from Seattle, you know, who's still there, you know, uh, the lovely John Zare who had that car accident. But I mean, they were, I I made my career on the backs of people at Seattle who did the website, you know, John Papanik and, and Gary Honig and Darren Perry, who died, unfortunately of AIDS. And yeah, you know, I made my career on those people and Sue Hovey and Neil Fine. And, and, um, Liz Merrill and Wright Thompson, I mean, and LZ Granderson and, and Jamel Hill. I mean, you know, ultimately your, your success is made by other people and you get the benefit of it. And then you just don't, you know, you end up in, if you're successful, of course, you, I, it's funny. I remember telling Connor Shell this, who's a good pal of yours, a good pal of mine. Yeah. Being in charge of content is going to be great. On the other hand, all the stuff that you really love to do, getting in an editing booth and finishing making a movie, giving notes on a documentary, you'll do less and less of that and more and more of administrative, trying to settle disputes, deal with leagues, deal with you know right. contracts and budgets. It's the inevitable irony of success as you ascend to a level that's a lot less fun, but a lot more powerful, a lot more financially rewarding, and a lot more influential. And you decide it's a... It's a, you know, it's a bargain. So, Agri didn't tell you to do it? Tell me to do what? To, <laughs> to get rid of me? No. <laughs> no. I mean, it made him mad, too. But, you know, to a remarkable degree. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I remember quite fondly. The autonomy in the job. I, there, there weren't 10 right. instances where either George or Bob ever said, no, you can't do that. There were 10. But it was not, you can't renew Bill Simmons. Right. If I'd figured out a way
0: and gone in, we it, I would have gotten to do it. So you talked about uh, you've talked about the issues you've had personally the last couple mm-hmm. years at ESPN. All right? Um, did you feel like it affected your performance at I, any point? Looking back now that you have some distance, I don't think
1: so, Bill. But you know, it's impossible to say. Ultimately, I mean, I've, I'm proud of the job I did. Um, it it may be a, a an instance you heard me say earlier. You know, I always felt a great sense of responsibility. Well. Some of my actions were irresponsible, so I didn't lead, didn't adhere to my own standards there. So uh, I, I, you know, immediately after the incident, I said never affected anything. I don't know, you know, you, if you have an argument with your spouse, it affects stuff. So, yeah. uh, but did I do? I feel highly confident that I did a pretty fabulous job for six years. I do. Uh, any number of things may affect it. I'm not getting enough sleep. Uh, sometimes um, affects what you do, but um, uh, I got I was well treated, and the company absolutely got their money's worth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what if you were still there? What would your job be like? I don't know. You know, it's um be trying to navigate. I
1: don't know. I, the you know Steve Jobs. Remember Steve Jobs said people don't know what they want till you give it to them. Yeah. Um, I wasn't. I didn't know I wanted to do something else I didn't I wanted to do that job. Uh once you change you find you like other things and maybe I have a little wisdom but it never works that way right? If I got the job right now that I got January 2012 I'd do things differently. Of course. Would it be better? I have no idea. If I'd a, I I your your suggestion I should have hired a chief of staff. Of course. And I I would do it now would it be better? I don't know. Uh you
0: know, nobody... Well, the, the, the thing now about that job is you're dealing with all of these uh, rivals and adversaries, including the zone. But these people that have spun have money and want rights and everybody's thinking the same way. Hey, but, guess what's a good bet? Live sports.
1: Look, ESPN, and I'm proud of this because I was one of the participants in this with a bunch of other people. We identified very early and went out and bought a bunch of rights. And to this day, I mean, you're just... No, ESPN renewed the American Athletic Conference. Right. Um, because they continue to understand that he who has the rights, it's like playing risk, right? Yeah. Risk, he who has the armies wins. If you get to roll three dice and everybody else has rolling two dice, you will win.
0: It's like and monopoly putting the houses up. Yeah.
1: And, and at some point playing everywhere rats. you go around, you you run into, gee, ESPN has. Seven more years of the NBA and six more years of the U.S. Open. And, and by the way, I think about 17 more years of the ACC. And um, uh, the, right, the live rights are still more valuable than any other content, right? All content is bifurcated now into the only thing that matters live is sports and news. And sports is scheduled and news is not. Yeah. Right? So you can't really schedule news, but you can schedule the Rose Bowl and you know when the – the, the day that Wimbledon starts and it's the most valuable live content on the planet. Live content is still the only place you're going to aggregate a a, a, a simultaneous, a concurrent audience and that's
0: valuable to market. That's also on social yep, experiencing everything at the same time. It, it just doesn't really happen. Game of Thrones is probably the last TV show. That's going to have everybody watching it when it's actually on. You, you don't need to watch anything else in a linear manner, right? You my, watch everything else on demand. My kids don't even know what channel ESPN's on, no. or any channel,
1: because they just go to Hulu, Netflix, and YouTube. And people speak into a remote and say ESPN. Now I've actually done it, and it comes up. It's remarkable, and um, I do think that yeah, you know, I mean we're in some kind of transitional period, and clearly. Um, there's too many, it's too hard now, right? I mean, everybody hates the t- pay TV bundle. Uh, and it is going to continue to decline. It's not going to go away, I don't think. But it did kind of work for a long time, right? You paid one person you got everything you needed. Yeah. Now you're going to have to pay 23 different people. And is there going to be a subscription threshold for people? Yeah, there they is. Nobody, like, I already
0: have nine fucking subscriptions. Nobody, nobody wants
1: more than, it's. it's like, I know the, Heinz Ketchup did all these surveys about how many different kinds of ketchup do people actually want, and it's not very many. Yeah, People don't want—you actually have—I forget who the grocery store guy is who sort of studied how the grocery store works. And if you have 43 varieties of Coca-Cola, it's too many. You you can't really get past about six. So people don't want to have to buy service A to get one comedy and service B to get uh, another comedy. So where does the zone fit
0: into this? Um, you are you're doing boxing. Look, we're you're doing this MLB Whip Around Show. You're that's, doing that's in the United States. MMA. So we're we're you have doing, a bunch we're, of soccer.
1: We have some rugby and some cricket. Look, we're we're uh, we made a pragmatic and opportunistic decision that boxing is the one sport that isn't managed overwhelmingly by NBC, ESPN, yeah. CBS because it had disappeared into a pay per view world and. I suspect I'm looking at your poster here of Ali Frazier. Yeah. Which would lead me to believe that probably you and I've never talked much about boxing, but we both grew up when you cared about boxing, when I still care and, and pay-per-view removed boxing from the mainstream and, and suppress the audience to be for, for most fights, some hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to pay $80 to see, um, Earl Spence and Mikey Garcia box. Yeah. That actually turns out, I guess, to be about 350,000 people. Well, they happen to be very talented boxers who almost nobody's heard of in this country. And uh, we're going to try to restore it to where they appear in front of big audiences for an affordable subscription price. The uh, And it's the, a ridiculously loyal audience, is the other thing. It's a very loyal audience. It cares a lot about it. I do think it can be a broader audience.
0: Yeah. Look, we— ESPN helps with that. Like, the fact that they're putting stuff on basic cable, I think. Look, I believed
1: in that. I, yeah. you know, I, I
0: did the top rank deal yeah. with the
1: idea that we were going to bring big fights. The first one we did was Manny Pacquiao and Jeff Horn from Australia. Right. And we wanted to get in front of a big audience again, and they've attracted some big audiences. Our business model is different. We think ultimately we'll end up with a large base of subscribers, and that for 100 bucks a year— they will be thrilled to get six or eight or 10, I hope, uh, fights that are pay-per-view quality fights. It's a great value. And then we do have to figure out the baseball show is the first step. We have to figure out how to get other content, be a multi-sports aggregation. Then we got to figure out the issue that I think everybody wrestles with, which is one size fits all probably is not the, the end game. you probably got to have tiered pricing and you got to yeah. figure out ways – Because now we're at twenty bucks, I think it's a great proposition for boxing fans. But what if we'd gone in to get the American Athletic Conference, which, by the way, has some appeal. We we thought about it. ESPN never let it come to market, but now it's twenty dollars varied entry. I don't know. You know, you got to figure out some way to make that conference available for six bucks or nine bucks a month, and we're going to figure that out. But we got a really good proposition. I think we're the exclusive home of. Uh, Canelo, Golovkin, Triple G, and uh, Anthony Joshua, and Danny Jacobs, and Demetrius Andrade. And there's some Deontay Wilder rumors. um, We, uh, look, uh, we, I had a chance to talk to Deontay, had a chance to meet with his team. We'd love to have that fight. Uh, They've got to figure out what you got now, which is appropriate. Is Deontay and his team have to figure out the right thing for him to do? And you got a little bit of a clash of business models, right? You got top-ranking ESPN that's a pay t- that's a pay TV model with some pay-per-views. You got we're the pure play. We're a subscription service. And yeah. we're gonna put the fights on the zone. And you got PBC that's, you know, part pay-per-view, part pay television. So the thing so that what, keeps
0: So what's the ceiling though? Is it like uh for you know, you look at the next four years. Are you become a major player with some of these rights that are going to be popping up? I, b-
1: I believe that we'll have a a robust and a profitable sub- direct to consumer subscription business uh, uh, in a pretty quick time frame in the United States. And remember, we're not a dem- we're not a U.S. business. We're a global yeah. business. Our biggest businesses right now are in Japan, Germany, Italy. We've launched in Spain. We'll launch in Brazil in the next month. We, we are a uh, m- first mover and trying to capture around the globe, go in, be first mover. we got good technology. We're buying rights. The U.S. is an anomalous market in the world. It's the biggest market in the world. Yeah. So you can't ignore it. we got to be here. But we're in Japan. We have the J League. Uh, we have uh, Japanese baseball. We have Major League Baseball. We have more baseball than anybody in a country for whom baseball is the one of the two most important sports, along with soccer, and we've got more soccer yeah, uh, in there. So that's a different market. Germany, we've got Champions League. Italy, we have Serie A. In Brazil, we'll have a lot of international rights. We'll be able to create, I think, uh, a niche service. We're not a niche service in Japan. We're one of the two major players in Japan now. and um, But we need presence in New York. Because New York, I'm not New York, in the U.S. Yeah. Because it's where the financial markets are. It's where big investors are. And uh so we got to figure out a proposition. I think cleverly, I just joined 10 months ago. They already figured out the boxing proposition. And I've simply tried to help make it by going and getting a deal. I did do a lot of sports deals. Right. So I went and, and helped do the deal to get Canelo as a way, who's the most, we now have the most important uh Hispanic fighter. We have the most important Western Europe fighter and we have the most important Eastern European fighter. So yeah, would I like to have the most important U S fighter? Uh, I would, I don't mean that as a poaching. I don't mean that to send a signal to anybody. You just simply ask me, we would love to figure out a way to have Dante Wilder fight Anthony Joshua because it's a fight fans won't, but I'm not trying to intrude on their business. They have good business to do as well. We're going to try to figure out. Right now, business models are in the way of
0: that happening. Right. And business models are real things. People are trying to make a living. So this happened with uh, the Zone sponsor of my podcast for a couple of months. We had we had dinner, like, what, September, October? Yeah. And you had said, you know, you'd had over, like, probably the year or so before that, you had had a real come-to-Jesus moment with a lot of stuff Yep, in your life. Personal, personal stuff, professional. Some friendships you felt like you had kind of— uh gotten away and you were trying to rekindle some relationships you had so we had a really good dinner we talked about a bunch of stuff and decided it would be fun to do something together and yep. that was it it was really that simple
1: yep but and it was
0: good it was a meaningful dinner for me because you know obviously you were a hugely important guy for me and even with the stuff here there's so much dna of all the stuff i learned from you mm. and espn and grantland mm. and kind of really have figured out how to put together as a business here, but it wouldn't have happened without you. So I'm glad we get along again. Yeah. We have it, a lot of history. Yeah, no, no, I'd forgotten
1: about a lot of it. It's it's <laughs> it's funny. It's like going, uh, I've actually avoided, I've never been to a reunion of anything. Yeah. Right? Never been to a high school reunion, college reunion, because I've never like, I wanted to go back and reminisce about what went on. This is a little, this is the closest to a reunion I've ever gone to.
0: Yeah. It's been fun. Um, I've enjoyed it. I appreciate it's, it. I appreciate good. the time. There, there's some other stuff we could have talked about, but you you're on the record with certain things, certain yeah. nights that happen in your life that, you know, I didn't you're not gonna talk about that.
1: I don't want to. I mean, right, you know, I, I think I've been reasonably forthcoming. Uh I the press release that went out at the at the time I wrote the I did an interview with the Hollywood reporter because uh uh there was clearly was a uh an unsatisfied, uh, unsatisfied, uh, response. People thought, thought they wanted to hear more. So I, uh, said more. And then I did a podcast with Peter Kafka. I don't have anything else to add to that. Um, and, um, how long do you see yourself working? Like at, at a, a at a high, at a high rate. I don't know. It's a funny thing. I'm 63.
0: Uh, Cause you're flying around a lot. Still. I'm flying around
1: a lot, but, um, I feel better. I feel, you know, I feel good. And, uh, I take care of myself, and uh, uh, I got up this morning and, uh, like uh, I, like Bob Iger. I, I might have beaten Bob up this morning. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. And uh, worked out and had oatmeal for breakfast, and I'm I'm getting on a plane. You accommodated me. Do I do in this early? Because I'm getting on a plane. Yeah, yeah, we got to go. To fly south of here
0: to try to see if I can find another place to launch uh, the zone in. Well, good luck. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we're able to do this. It's nice to uh, have you back. I'm glad. Maybe this is this is a good lesson to people. Sometimes some shit can happen, but talk about it and and uh, put the past in the past. I would do a couple of things differently. I'm sure you would too.
1: Me too. But look, we are where we are, and you can't. You know. However inelegant the path is, you, you either are happy with where you are or you're not. I'm happy with where you and I are. I'm happy where I am and it's fun. And we'll, we'll have dinner again and we'll laugh and we'll have some more fun.
0: All right, John Skipper, thank you. All right, thank you, Bill. All right, thanks to the Zone. Don't forget Apple, Android app, either store. Sign up, create an account, start watching across nearly any of your devices. D-A-Z-N-N. Thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. Everything you need to stop fear at the front door, including 24-7 protection. Security experts on standby to send the authorities in an emergency. Simply Safe we even keep working. If the power goes out, the Wi Fi goes down, or if a burglar smashes your keypad so you know your home is secure, always try Simply Safe. See how good it feels to fear less. Go to slash BS. That is safe with two eyes. slash BS. Back with one more podcast later in the week. Until then.